So uh, let me ask you this question. No hands, please. Do you know any prickly people? Again, no hands. Keep your hands down. And of course, by prickly, I'm not talking about, you know, pimply or people with spiky hair. By prickly, I'm talking about people who, you know, when you brush up against them relationally, they tend to leave you with emotional bruises and abrasions and scars, that kind of thing. Uh, Maybe you're sitting beside a prickly person, behind a prickly person. Uh, Maybe you are that prickly person. I know my first church where I served, uh, there were quite a few prickly people. And uh, I remember this one lady in particular. She was quite prickly. And there were three of us pastors on staff, and we crossed swords with her numerous times. Uh, I tended to cross swords with her more than the other pastors did because um, I was a pastor of youth and young adults, and this lady had three kids, and they were in youth and young adults. And I remember this one particular uh, situation or instance where I was uh, heading up uh, what was our, our ministries committee meeting, and so all the different ministry heads would come together like quarterly, something like that. There'd be maybe a dozen of us in the room, so children's and, and uh, Sunday school, CE, all these leaders would come, and I would chair this meeting. And so I remember uh, we would just go around, each person given a brief update as to the goings-on in their particular ministry. And so when it came time to give the youth report, well, that was one of my many portfolios, and so I proceeded to give the youth report. And uh, I, I don't know what I said, but it was clearly the wrong thing, uh, because this lady, she cut me off, and she just started to just go right into me. Like, she was just tearing into me, and I could not get a word out edgewise, and she was going and going and going, and then she did her tirade, and then she got up, and she left the room, and she slammed the door. And I'm just sitting there in this meeting, like, okay, what just happened here? Like, this lady had just verbally skewered me, you know, embarrassed me publicly. Like, how do you move forward from that, right? Like Jesus calls us to love our brothers and sisters. Uh, but how do you love that? How do you love a prickly person? And, and loving prickly people is very unnatural. Right? Jesus talks about loving our enemies. Very unnatural. And it takes nothing less than the Spirit of the Almighty God at work in you to enable you to love that. The Apostle Paul knew that, and that's why I think at the outset of his letter in Philippians, he prays for the church's love. I invite you to turn with me to uh, Philippians chapter 1. So I'm here for the next four Sundays, and I want to take you through a little mini-series of Philippians. We're not going to hit every text, but I just want to hit a few few texts in particular. And so, by way of context, Paul is writing Philippians, and I think a lot of us know this, he's writing from prison. This is one of his prison letters, his prison epistles, right? So he's writing in prison because he has been in prison for preaching the gospel, right? Because the gospel message is Jesus is Lord. That's the confession. That's the belief. That's the message. Jesus is Lord. But guess what? In the Roman Empire, and we have inscriptions that tell us this, Caesar is Lord, 
So you go around preaching Jesus is Lord. That's kind of treasonous. Not a good message to preach. It lands him in prison, as well as other people in prison. And so, having been in prison for preaching the gospel, uh, he receives Epaphroditus, one of the uh, members of the church, and we get this from Philippians 2. Epaphroditus comes, he, he gives him some monetary support, he soldiers alongside of Paul in preaching the gospel there, but he also updates the church in terms of the goings-on of this church that Paul had planted 10 years earlier. And one of the things that Epaphroditus shares with Paul is that there's division, growing division. And it's not like over-the-top kind of division, like what you get in, in the Galatian churches or Corinth, but it's very much there, and it's very much threatening to pull this beloved church apart from the seams. And so Paul wants to, uh, amongst other things, he wants to address this issue. The, the Philippians church is hoping that Paul will just send Timothy back, right, to help fix this issue, but Paul will tell them in chapter 2 that, you know what, I, I can't afford to send Timothy right now. I, I need him where I'm at. But rather than send Epaphroditus back to the church empty-handed, he sends them back with a scroll, a divinely revealed, divinely inspired text that we call Paul's letter to the Philippians. So loving prickly people and getting through conflict, well, it very much depends on our prayer life, right? It's not just that we pray, but it's how we pray. It's how we pray because we're supposed to mature in our prayer life. The things we prayed at 10, at 12, at 15, we should be praying a lot differently, more differently, at like 25, 35, 55, 65. And so Paul knows that, and so Paul is going to model for the church how to pray. He doesn't just stop at telling them, I pray for you guys a lot, which that in and of itself is really uh, encouraging. Wow, the apostle prays for us a lot. But he goes on to model for them, and this, how is I, this is how I pray for you. So the idea is that, oh, Paul prays this way for us, then maybe we should pray this way for ourselves as well. Because I think the answer to that prayer is unity. So uh, Philippians chapter 1, I'm going to read the wider text. We're just going to focus on the prayer, but let me just read the wider text beginning in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will, who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart for whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ Jesus, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, once again, we bow in your presence, thanking you for this, your word, uh, for preserving it for us, and that it divides so, uh, joint, joint 
and bone and marrow, and it cuts to the heart. And so we pray a prayer of release that your Holy Spirit would um, speak very clearly through this text. Encourage those who need encouragement and comfort those who need comfort. Rebuke those who need rebuke. And we will give you all the glory for what you are doing. In Jesus' name, amen. So, you know, this morning you might be dealing with a prickly person. And you might be looking for an escape hatch. How can I get out of this? And you know what? Paul doesn't give us an escape hatch, but he gives us a way through conflict. And it's his prayer. And I want us to... to See how we can learn to pray this prayer that will help us navigate through the conflict that we might be in. And so to get through conflict well and redemptively, there's three things I want to show you from this prayer of Paul's, from this passage of Scripture. And the first is this. We can get through conflict well by praying for a deeper love for one another. Right? By praying for a deeper love for one another. Look at the first part of verse Nine And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more. So first, two points of clarification here. First, Paul is not talking in terms of their love abounding. He's not talking about their love for God. He's talking about their love contextually, their love for each other. Right? And the two are very intertwined. Right? In, in fact, 1 John chapter 4 brings these two dimensions of our salvation together. That 1 John says that, that uh, to love God means you love one another. Right? You love your brothers and sisters. And if you don't love your brothers and sisters, John says that actually calls into the question the genuineness of your love for God. He here is talking, Paul is talking about our love for one another. And the other point of clarification is he's not talking about like this worldly sentimental love. Because right? we tend to think of love as in worldly sentimental kind of way. And that's not what he's talking about here. Because there's a huge difference between how the world loves and how God loves. Right? So I'm sure given the size of a crowd like this, there's got to be at least a few people here who love romantic movies. And the very least romantic comedies. You know who you are. No hands. And so... There come a point in the movie, a very poignant moment, soft music playing in the background, and the one person will look at the other and say, oh, I love you. And the other one will respond like, I love you. I love you. What does that mean? I love you. I love you in world speak means I find you lovely. That's what it means. You are so handsome. You are so pretty. You're so smart. You make me feel like the most important person in the world. I love you in world speak means I find you lovely. It's very conditional. That is not how God loves. God doesn't love us because he finds us so adorable. There's so much potential. He's, we, we have such a tremendous sense of humor. We are so smart. No, he doesn't. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's unconditional. While we were still sinners, the Father purposed the Son to die for us. Not when we were reformed sinners. Oh, we see the light. Okay, they're seeing the light. I'm going to send you now, Jesus. While we were still in the midst of it, still hostile, still at enmity towards God, Christ died for us. God's love is unconditional, not conditional. And that's the love that he's talking about here, our experience of God's love for one another. And we need to be praying this regularly. 
frequently. The NIV says in verse 9, and this is my prayer, which makes it sound like a noun, but in Greek it's actually a verb. He says, I'm praying this way. And it's a present tense verb, which means this is how Paul prays for them regularly, routinely. This is not a one-off, but he prays for them this way regularly and routinely. And our experience of God's love for each other, it needs to grow. Look at verse 9 again. And this is my prayer, or this is how I'm praying for you, that your love may abound more and more. Right? And the word for abound, again, it's like a present tense in the Greek tense. So literally, it's, it's may continually abound. So, so think of like a balloon inflating, that your love for one another, your experience of God's love for one another would like inflate and bound. Right? Because that's kind of how the Christian life goes. Right? It's, not, it's not just that you have faith, but it's that your faith grows. Right? Your faith grows. It's not just that you have spiritual gifts, but through the prayerful exercise of those spiritual gifts that they, they grow. It's not just that you're godly, but it's that your godliness, it grows. Their experience of God's love for each other needs to grow. And God's love, notice, is framed by discernment. Right? He says that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. You see, God's love can't be reduced to mere mushy sentimentality. Right? Like when God loves, he acts. His love prompts him and moves him to act. God, Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his love for us. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he felt warm fuzzies in his heart. Maybe, I don't know for sure, but what I do know for sure is that God so loved the world that he gave, right? God's love prompts him to act. And when he acts, he always acts in full accord with his righteousness, his wisdom, his discernment. You know, I really needed a deeper love for that lady, the one that cut me up at that meeting. Really needed a deeper love for her. I really did, to be honest. I remember another time before that meeting, um, well before that meeting, there's this other instance where in our church at that time, we had a children's moment. And so the children would come forward in the service. And then it was a rotation of different people who would give a little lesson, like five-minute devotional, if that, to this children, pray for them, dismiss them to children's church. So one particular Sunday, uh, that lady was scheduled to give the message. And so she gave her devotional and prayed for them, dismissed them, and seemed fine. At the end of that service, this visitor comes to me, since I guess I'm one of the pastors, comes to me and says, you know what, that, that lady, that little children's talk she gave, that, that offended me. Okay, were we listening to the same message? Like, how did that offend you? And so she explained, and I thought, oh, wow. I never thought about that. I never viewed it from that angle. Okay, Wow. Okay, yeah, that's a valid point. I'll let her know. Because, you know, I would want to know. If I offended somebody unintentionally, I would want to know. So later that week, I called her up to let her know. Come to find out, she didn't want to know. And she tore into me on the phone. Like, I literally, no, I had it like this. Because she was that loud, right? And she's just yelling at me. And, oh, if that's the way it is, then I'm just going to quit. You know, that, I'm just going to leave. I'm going to quit. And so the thought bubble over my head at that point was, yeah, just don't quit there, but quit our church. You know, I'm not saying this. That's the thought bubble. Quit our church. You know, our nursery has enough babies as it is. You know, make like a tree and leave. Just go. 
I needed a deeper love, a deeper experience of God's love for that lady. Right? If we want to move through conflict well, we need to be praying for a deeper experience of God's love for one another. Secondly, we can move through conflict well by praying for sharper spiritual clarity. <clears throat> sharper spiritual clarity. Look at verse 10, the first part. Paul prays this way, so that, verse 10, you may be able to discern what is best. Right? So there's a reason why he prays that their love, their experience of God's love would abound and grow more and more. It's so that. It's for sharper spiritual clarity. And spiritual clarity, I think, is about three things, at least three things. And the first, spiritual clarity is about discerning what's best for Christ's glory. What is best for the glory of Christ? Like, like what drives you in life? What is your passion? And really, you don't really have to hear what a person says. You just observe their life. How do they live? How do they orient their life? How they orient their life tells you what their passion is. And for a lot of people, it's money or possessions or position, or privilege, or power. Just observe. Actions don't lie. They don't. Our passion ought to be Christ. Our glory, the glory of our life, needs to be Christ. So as you're praying, ask yourself this question. Will the answer to my prayer glorify Christ? Will the answer to this prayer that I'm praying for whoever it is, maybe it's for a church, maybe it's for you, maybe it's for... Someone that you know, will it glorify Christ? If the answer is no, then why are you praying it? Discerning spiritual clarity is about discerning what's best for Christ's glory. It's about discerning what is best for Christ's church, generally speaking. So how important is the church to you? How important is the church to you? The church was incredibly important to the Apostle Paul. How do we know that? Well, if we keep reading Philippians... And we'll probably get there next week. The back part of chapter 1, Paul is kind of musing out loud. And he's like, you know what? I'm not sure if this is the end of the line for me. Because, you know, the record, the track record for Christians imprisoned in first century Rome for preaching the gospel, not very good. So he's like, I, I don't know if there's more after this. I don't know. And to be honest, church, Far better, Paul says, it's far better for me to depart and to be with Christ. For me to live as, for me to live as Christ, but to die is gain. So he says, man, I, I just want to be with Jesus because it's way better than anything I got in his life. That's what he says. But he says, but for your sake, church, I hope I get to stick around because then I can continue to ground you and establish you in the gospel. That's how important the church was. To Paul. Way better to go, but he hopes he can stick around to continue to build the church. How important is a church to you? Right? Like, do you plan your life around the church or do you plan church around your life? You know, my last church where I was pastored, there's a number of parents who the kids played hockey and you wouldn't see them for six months because it was always on Sunday. So they would, it's not like they're going to some other church or some other service, they just would absent themselves from the local assembly for six months. And once hockey's done, okay, I'm back. How important is the church? Ask yourself this question. Will the answer to my prayer that I'm praying, will it benefit the church? If the answer is no, why are you praying it? And spiritual clarity is also about what's discerning what's best for, not just the church generally, but for our brothers and sisters specifically. 
And you see this more in Romans. You don't have to turn to Romans. But in Romans 14, so one of the reasons why Paul writes Romans is he's, he's trying to help the church there navigate the tension that exists between Jewish Christians who want to continue observing aspects of the law, not, not for the sake of salvation, it's just for the, the sake of their heritage. As Paul will say, they have a tremendous heritage. He'll say this in Romans, a rich heritage. And the law is good, the law is holy, the law is just. They want to continue to observe the law, like dietary laws, just because it's their heritage. But as long as they do that, then it's a lot, it, well, you can't really eat with your Gentile Christian brothers and sisters. So he's trying to help this church navigate this tension. And he says, he writes, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother or sister's way. As one who is in the Lord Jesus, I'm fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. But... If anyone regards something as unclean, then for him or her, it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy your brother or sister for whom Christ died. Right? Spiritual clarity is about discerning what is best for our brothers and sisters in particular. At my first church, that church I was talking about where that meeting kind of went off the rails, I I had brought my youth to this big conference, a big youth conference, and this was in Windsor, so in Detroit, and, and uh, God was doing a tremendous work there, like amongst the literally thousands of youths that were there and in my group. And so whenever I take my group uh, to something like that, then at the next regularly scheduled youth meeting, I always have a debrief. Let's just share, what was God doing in your life there? What was he speaking to you? What were you learning? And they just go around and they... Just share. And I remember the group was saying, you know what, we feel really convicted about the music we've been listening to. Because they were listening to some pretty filthy stuff. And I hadn't broached that topic up in point, at that point in time. I hadn't broached it at all. Uh, but I knew at one point I was going to have to. But they were listening, gangster rap, stuff like that. It was just, it was not good stuff. And so when they are like, we feel convicted about this and what we want to do is at the next youth meeting, we want to bring in all our music, and we just want to smash it. We want to bring in all our secular music and just smash it. I'm like, wow, praise God, that, that's, that's awesome. So the next week, they bring in all their music, and this one, this one uh, girl, she brings in a stack of like CDs, which I think most people are old enough to know what CDs are here. Just think small plastic Frisbees with music on them. Stack of CDs like this, which is like 200 bucks. Brings them in to smash. And they're smashing them. But here's the thing. So that was not my conviction. And, you know, I wasn't listening to filthy stuff like that at all. But you know what? I was listening to secular music. It's, you know, some of it's quite good. But I knew, I knew that what was best for my younger brothers and sisters if I had abstained from that, said, oh, that's good for you guys. That's good. You guys do that. I'm, gonna, I'm fine with my secular stuff. Then that would have been a stumbling block for them. That was, oh, wait a minute. But I thought God wanted us to do this. But then Pastor Wayne's not. He's just, oh, man. Is this? Now, that wouldn't have been a very loving thing for me to abstain from that. So I brought in my secular music. Threw it in there. Let's smash. And we smashed it. Right? It's about spiritual clarity. It's about discerning what's best for our brothers and sisters, specifically. So if we want to move through 
conflict well and deal with prickly people well, we need to be praying for a deeper love for one another, deeper experience of God's love for one another, and be praying for sharper spiritual clarity. And thirdly and finally, we'll move through conflict well by praying for greater personal Christ-likeness. Greater personal Christ-likeness. Look at verse uh, 10 again. So that you may be able, you may be able to discern what is best and may be. You may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. Right? So in other words, that we would reflect Jesus' character. We, not, not the person you're praying for, but me, the prayer that I, the intercessor, would reflect more and more of Jesus. Right, and the word for pure there it means unmixed, like unmixed bread, unleavened bread. It's pure, and and our so our character should become purer. I like how Paul puts it in Galatians. Right, Paul will say, uh, "So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. What are they, Paul? Sexual immorality." Impurity, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, factions, envy, drunkenness. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Our character should become purer, reflecting the fruit of the Spirit. The word for blameless in Philippians there, it refers to not causing someone to stumble. And Jesus talked about that, right? He said, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world, because of its stumbling block, such things must come, but woe to the person through whom the stumbling block comes. Notice that this greater personal Christ-likeness that we're praying for, for us, it comes about through God working in us. Look at the first part of verse 11. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. So years ago, I worked construction in between churches. Uh, just, I was just a grunt, did all the heavy lifting and toting that the other people, the skilled laborers, don't do. That's what I did. And, you know, when you work, on, if you've been on a construction site, like, it's just teeming with activity, right? Like, there's all kinds of stuff going on. You've got the excavators doing its thing, and the crane doing its thing, and the, the front-end loader doing its thing, and the bulldozers, and all this heavy-duty equipment just working, and all these men, and jackhammers, and all this stuff, which is why some, some genius years ago probably got filthy rich when they invented the sign men at work, right, or people working. Well, I believe... That in the spiritual realm, there hangs a sign over every individual Christian and over every local church that says God at work. God is working. What is God doing? God is forming and shaping and fashioning us individually to become more like Jesus and corporately as a church to become more like Jesus. Paul put it this way in Philippians 2. He said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. 
So this greater personal Christ-likeness comes about through God working in us. And lastly, greater personal Christ-likeness is the ultimate goal of our life. It's the ultimate goal of our life. Look at how Paul ends his prayer, to the glory and praise of God. Right, to the glory and praise of God. He prays to the glory and praise of God. The answer to this prayer is to the glory and praise of God. And this is where sometimes Christians can stumble, right? Because we don't really think of our lives as being to the glory and praise of God. Right? We kind of think that the goal in life is to be happy. If you can be happy, you know, Mom, Dad, what should I do in life? Well, do something that makes you happy. Because that's the goal. Wait, that's not the goal. Like God's goal for your life, like I don't know you from Adam, and you don't really know me from Adam, but if you're a believer, if you're a genuine believer in Jesus Christ, I know what God's goal is for your life. It's Christ-likeness. That is the ultimate goal that he has for you and for me, is to become more and more like Jesus, to become holy, as the Bible says. Holy, meaning Christ-likeness. Not to be happy. Like, that's one of the tails wagging the dog. Because as you become more like Christ, which is the ultimate purpose for your life, you actually become happier. Because you're becoming holier. Like, true holiness. Not legalistic holiness, but true Christ-likeness from the inside out. As you grow in that, you will become happier. Because that's, that's why God created you. To become holy. To become more like Jesus. You know, because God wanted to use that relationship with that lady who chewed me out, not to make me happy, because that really wasn't working, but he wanted to use it to make me holy, to make me more Christ-like, to make me more like Jesus. So, you know, I sat in that meeting after that tirade, after she just chewed me out publicly in this big meeting, stormed out, Slam the door. I'm like, oh, wow, what just happened here? And to be honest, church, to be honest, if that encounter had taken place somewhat earlier in my tenure there, I would have said, oh, folks, can you just, let's just take five. Five minute break. I'll be back in five. And before she could have got to her car, I would have got up to her and I said, whoa, 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 whoa. You had your shot. Now it's my shirt. Let me tell you how people really think of you. They're just afraid. Let me just tell you how things really are with you. But you know what? God had been working in my heart. He'd been working in my heart. He'd been, as I'd been asking him to grow, my love, my experience of his love from my brothers and sisters, he'd been working, he'd been answering that prayer. So that week I called her up and I said, you know what, can we get together and just talk? And she's like, sure. So I drive over to her house on the east side. I sit in the front room with her and her husband. Not to tell her off, to say, you know what, you just chewed out a pastor publicly, embarrassed a pastor publicly. You owe me an apology, sister. No, not to do that. But we sat in the front room together, the three of us. And I said, you know, that meeting went off the rails. And in my report, you know, I said something to you, to the group, and it, it clearly it set you off. And, and I'm sorry for that. I, that was not my intention at all. I am genuinely sorry 
uh, for setting you off the way I did with what I said. Please forgive me for that. And you know what? Our relationship from that moment on changed for the better. Now, don't get me wrong. She was still a prickly person, right? At the end of the day, it's really hard to give a porcupine a haircut. She's a prickly person, but our relationship did change positively for the better. You know what? Today, this morning, this week, this month, if, you're, if you've been bumping up against a prickly person and you've got the, the scars and the abrasions and the cuts because of that, God doesn't give us a way out. He doesn't give us an escape hatch, but he gives us a way through. And it's Paul's prayer. It's praying alongside of Paul as Paul prayed for the church, right? For a deeper experience of God's love for one another, for sharper spiritual clarity and for greater personal Christ-likeness. Will you pray alongside of the Apostle Paul as he prayed for the church? Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, thank you so much that um, while we were still sinners, you sent Jesus Christ into this world born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, took on our sins that separated us from you, took them on as his own in order to restore, to bring us to saving genuine fellowship with you through faith in Jesus and his name and his work. And you did this for us, God, not because we are so worthy, but because you are love and you sovereignly did this. Not because you owed this to us, but because you are the sovereign God, Holy Father, and you love us. And Lord, it's so great that, um, that by your Holy Spirit, we, we can share your love, your love, not our own human love, but your love with others. Forgive us, God, when we get in the way of doing this, when we craft our own agenda rather than uh, your agenda for us, when we tend to um, put ourselves first rather than the kingdom and your righteousness first. Because whenever we do that, Lord, we make a mess of things. So forgive us, God, when we've done that. And I pray that you would, uh, by your grace, Lord, help us to love well. May that characterize us. Lord, I pray for any here who are in a particularly difficult relationship or situation, that you grant them discernment the discernment that comes from the Holy Spirit, and that you would image Christ in them, that Jesus Christ would be seen in them, would be heard through them to the glory and praise of God. And as a positive witness to the church and in the church, and we thank you for these things and we pray them in the name of Jesus. Amen.